Hi, Jim here. Thanks for listening to this past episode of the Ski Podcast. Since releasing this podcast, we have a new supporter of the show. The Ski Podcast is now supported by Switzerland Tourism. They will be helping us explore some of the 355 ski destinations across the country, from famous names of Samaritz, Lax, Davos and Zermatt, to the lesser-known resorts that cover their mountainous land. We will be reporting on them and telling interesting stories about the people who live and work there. In total, there are 7,067 kilometres of slopes to ski and 1,800 lifts to ride and at least 80 of them are funiculars, which is good because I do love a good funicular. Well, there's a lot to do, so while we get on with that, you can get on with listening to this episode of the Ski Podcast. Thanks, listener, and thanks, Switzerland Tourism. Hello and welcome to episode 25 of the Ski Podcast in association with the Chill Factory, the Northwest Premier Ski and Snowboard Centre. If you're going soon and fancy saving a few quid, then book online and use the code SKIPOD10 at the checkout. I am still Jim Duncan and the Ski Pod is co-presented by Ian Martin. Ian, give us your best crowded telecabin moo. <laughs> uh, I'll just stick with saying hello. How about that? I'm not in a crowded telecabin. I'd love to be, but I'm not at the moment. I don't think anyone moves anymore. That's very uh, late, early 90s. Well, there's probably someone with like one of those jester hats on who's doing it. Oh, that's even worse. That just brings the tone down. I like classy moves, no jester hats. Um, In today's show, we will talk about St. Anton Airlines, Team GB's new signing, Dave Riding, Val Dezaire turning, and there'll be more from Shemi Olcott and Billy Morgan, as well as the Ski Book Club is back. Have we even got time for that? Who knows? First, um, Ian, I'd like to make uh, a huge apology oh, yeah. to the th- literally thousands of people who are probably be driving round the, the east end of Lake Annecy looking for Glacier <laughs> 3000 um, a few weeks ago. Um, what I meant was uh, Lake Geneva. I always get my lakes mixed up. I've got heat. I've got previews of it, Ian. Once, um, I was meant to go for a nice little walk with my wife around Lake Mindewer, Lake Windermere, and we end up at Lake Baikal. In Russia, can you believe? So I do apologise to everyone for that. Well, forgiven, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Simon Mayo. This is, uh, this is Simon Mayo's Confessions. Um, right, so uh, the British press seem to report, or I don't know, we're guilty of it, I suppose. This is how the last few months I feel have gone in. Oh, there's no <laughs> snow. Oh, there's loads of snow. Let's open the Alps early. Oh, it's all melted. Oh, it's too hot. No more snow for the next five months. Oh, my God. Hang on, it's cold. It's snowing again. Quick, make some snow. Oh, there's too much snow again. Whew, that's how it's felt, Ian. Uh, yeah, you? What, what sort of period of time was that? Was that a week or was that... Uh... That's been like the last two weeks. Yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, we did our last uh, podcast and we said, cool, load of snow, looking good. Uh, and I booked uh, my trip to the uh, Alps. And then we've had a very warm, unseasonably warm period and most of it has uh, melted. But, you know, we, we often, I find anyway, it can be a little kind of Tarantes France focused. And, uh, you know, there is more snow elsewhere in the Alps. There's also... They're doing, you know, really well in in Colorado, uh, for example. So there is there is plenty of snow uh, out there, but at the moment, for for example, Valterens, which is opening this weekend, you know, they're claiming to be opening 50 kilometres of peak, and it's almost exclusively artificial snow that's been fortunately generated because the the temperatures have dropped in the last week. But they were meant to open um, a week They earlier, were they? meant to open on the 17th, and that didn't happen. I mean, you've got to be realistic. The 24th of uh, November is still pretty early. I mean, it is the highest ski resort in Europe, but, uh, you know, most people don't actually go skiing uh, in November. I was going to say, I don't think anyone really, especially British people, they don't tend to Well, you can't. I mean, I don't know then, do if any tour operators that offer, you know, this week coming up. You'd have to go all self-catering. It reminds me of um, uh, one of my seasons I did in Lazark. And we arrived and there was no snow. It was it was very warm. to the And then the temperature dropped, but still there was no precipitation. So I just remember watching them making artificial snow up in um, Arc 2000 and then just putting it all in the back of a lorry and driving it around right. to the rest of the resort to do it. And still that first week we were sending guests over to yeah. Val d'Azer to ski. Yeah, I mean, that, that um, 
that does sound dated because, and the principal reason is because these days the amount of uh, snow cannons and snow coverage is so much higher than it used to be. I mean, they, you know, the resorts, it's uh, the commercial imperative to be able to open and to be able to offer runs is so high that um, snow cannon coverage, even in a resort like Valterrens or even, for example, look at uh, Les Deux Alpes, you know, have a glacier where they, they put snow cannons up on the glacier at 3,000 metres because they want to be able to guarantee that they're going to be able to have snow. So, um, so these days you probably wouldn't need the lorry, you just need the temperatures to be low enough. <laughs> no lorries required. Uh, would you, if, how would you feel if you turned up and there was no snow and you booked your, your week holiday? It's kind of different for us because we go on a lot more holidays than other people, I feel. Uh, I'd like to think mine aren't holidays. They're work trips, Jim. Get it right. Uh, yeah, that's, what you t- <laughs> that's what I tell the tax man. Yes, you're right. <laughs> yeah. But, um, well, it's happened to me because um, we did actually go on a family holiday that uh, you know I had paid for uh, to La Rosière uh, a few years back. And it was the week before Christmas. Pretty cheap week to go if you're a, a family. Um, but we got there and La Rosière wasn't open. Uh, but, you know, it wasn't a big drama because, um, you know, we hired a car uh, and we skied that week in uh, pretty much a different resort every day. We skied in uh, Courcheval, Les Arts, La Plan, Val d'Isère and Team. Uh, and road tripped it. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it was actually, you know, great fun. And the kids got to see all these different resorts. And um, it was, you know, me who had to do an extra bit of driving every day. It wasn't as convenient. But, you know, when you get to... You know, resort and there is no snow. I mean, I've done seasons as well. I worked in Châtel in the Port du Soleil, uh, and it was a very poor uh, snow season. And we had guests coming out. Um, we had, to, you know, we were shipping them to uh, to Verbier for the day. I think it was. You know, that that wasn't ideal. I remember there was another one tour I did, and it was towards the end. It was a really, there was it was a hot spring, and everything was melted. So we just um, went uh, and bought ourselves some cheap golf clubs and set up a mini golf club around Le Pra, interweaving through chalets all the way up to the ski jump. Oh, if only that had been so, in the days of GoPros, that'd be viral. Yeah. Him, that would be um, a mini golf course around Le Pra. It would be. Um, but there has been yeah. snow, as, as you said, and I think quite a lot of it has fallen in a place called St Anton, which I don't really know much about. Um, is there any way I could find out about it, Ian, do you know? There is, actually. We, a friend of uh, the podcast, Andy Butterworth, uh, has recorded a, a little report. It was snowing at the time of his report, and um, I guess we'll listen to that now. Hi, and welcome to my first ever participation in a podcast. Um, my name is Andy Butterworth. I've lived in St Anton for about 20 years now um, and run a company called Kaluma Travel. Um, and I'm in a very snowy, very white St Anton Amalberg. Um, it snowed overnight, um, only a few centimetres, um, which is awesome enough. The temperature's um, very cold, um, minus sort of minus 10 today. Um, and the temperature's dropping over the next four to seven days, um, which should hopefully freeze the mountain. Um, keep the snow sticking around, keep the snow cannons working um, and set us up with a, a decent base for the season ahead. Um, if we're to believe the locals um, or the local weather experts, um, there's a big change in the weather systems or the weather pattern just around the corner, um, around about the 24th, 25th of November, which should bring about um, a lot of snow. Um, so certainly everyone in the resort um, is hoping that rings true. Um, Probably because of the amazing snowfall last season, um, the resort's opening a little bit earlier. Um, for those of you that do remember um, the start of last winter, um, I certainly remember digging out our Land Rover um, from 30 to 40 centimetres of snow overnight, pretty much every morning for about 15 days in a row. Um, and certainly by this time last year, by the 19th of November, um, we were ski touring and skiing down knee-deep fresh tracks um, most days, um, which was pretty awesome. Um, St Anton's kind of jumped on this this bandwagon of some early snow um, for the, the big opening weekend. Um, Anton's been desperate to kind of catch up um, with many resorts like Ischgl and their famous concerts um, that they have. And I know Val d'Isère in France has a, has a huge opening party as well. Well, this year St Anton have, uh, have stepped it up for the first time um, and uh, they've got the... The ex Sporty Spice, Spice Girl, Mel C, and Anastasia um, opening up the, the resort this year with a big open air concert on the 1st of December, which um, for the first time has got all the locals pretty excited about something um, kind of big for the opening weekend. So 
definitely hoping there's a bit of snow and, and lots of people around for those concerts. Also new this year is, um, is an event called Catch Me If You Can. Um, not the great film with Leonardo DiCaprio imitating a pilot um, escaping the FBI, but a new race in St. Anton um, to mark the start of the winter. Um, lots of people have heard of the, the, the white rush or the white noise, um, which is the end of season ski race in St. Anton, where it's top to bottom as fast as you can with a kind of kamikaze style shotgun start, um, which has now become very famous, televised um, all over the world um, and many famous ski races entering entering that. Well, they, they, St. Anton's decided to try and do something at the start of the season um, with this Catch Me If You Can race as the new opener um, to go alongside the concerts. It's basically like a, a giant dual downhill slalom. Um, 222 participants, um, anyone can enter. Um, you compete against each other and the clock. Um, so it's kind of like a, a slalom mixed with a bit of ski cross, mixed with downhill with gates and timers. Um, and of course, um, in St. Anton, party style, um, a DJ and commentator adding some, some music, some good vibes, some tunes to it all um, to try and make the, the whole atmosphere um, in town a, a good old buzz, like a, a bit more like a, a festival uh, along the main street. The main purpose of this podcast, I think, when, when Ian asked me if I'd like to say a few words, was um, was to talk about what's new in St. Anton. And, and to be honest, apart from a grander opening, which I just described with Mel C and Anastasia and the Catch Me If You Can race, um, St. Anton doesn't need, really need to reinvent itself. There's not that much new things that are happening. Um, St. Anton just works. It's popular. It's famous the world over um, for its skiing, for its party, for its nightlife. Um, and, and it's becoming more and more of an international resort all the time, um, opening up new markets all over the place. So there's not actually that much happening um, that is going to be of any like real benefit or any, re- any real notice um, or have any real effect to, like, to, to your general tourist. Um, but perhaps the best thing that has happened over the past couple of years, which is really coming into prominence now and, and the resorts, the surrounding resorts are really seeing the benefit, is the... Um, what was a couple of years ago, the new Flexenbahn lift, the, the, the link that was open with a big fanfare between um, St. Anton and, and Zurs, connecting all that area. Um, it took quite a while for this to be working to, to full capacity and to full speed. Um, and if I'm honest, it was, was quite confusing at first. Um, I think lots of people struggled to see the real benefit of it all um, because the lifts weren't moving at full speed. It wasn't really carrying that many people. There's, the, the lifts kind of shoot off in different directions and it was it was the, the lift station was quite confusing the car park had, had, had gone the buses had, had sort of stopped running and everything was banking on these lifts however um, a few years on and and the benefit is definitely being seen um, it's spreading people far better around the Arlberg now it's working at its full capacity um, it keeps people moving it's a great benefit I think for Leck and Zers as well um, it means there's not so much pedestrian or, or, or car traffic in the town as as people aren't coming on their day trips into the actual resort they kind of park up um, in Alp routes um, in between sort of Leck and Zers and, and, and St Anton at this car park and, and from there they manage to, uh, to, to jump on the new lifts and, and ski the whole of the Arlberg so that really is a it's a huge difference and, and I think the resort really is reaping the benefits of, of those investments from a couple of years ago. Um, I suppose like any good investment it takes a couple of years to really um, come to prominence but now it really is good. Um, now New Year's Eve is always fun in St Anton, um, if not a little dangerous. Uh, anyone who's been here will know the, the main street um, hosts the, the main firework display of the town, just goes off outside the post hotel um, with a really impressive firework display like shooting up above the town. Um, but it can be quite dangerous um, and a few people do get carried away and quite often compared to, to, to Beirut in its, in, in, in its heyday with fireworks flying at all kind of angles and people ducking and crackers and bangers going off all over the place. Um, it, it, it could be quite scary and, and wasn't, if I'm honest, the most family friendly of firework displays, although the actual display itself was impressive. It wasn't always the safest place to be. Um, and of course all these um, discarded fireworks shells aren't the best for the environment and they'll be littered over the slopes and on, 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 on the floor and uh, on the mountain the, the next morning. Um, but then step forward last year, uh, Anton Hotel and a very eco-friendly family um, who, who run the hotel um, and they arranged a laser light show 
uh, firework display last year with the to the beat of a DJ um, playing the tunes and and the, this laser light show like firing up into into the sky light, lighting everything up and it really really went down well um, that's where most people spent their New Year's Eve uh, watching this show and I think as a result because um, it went down so well um, they're going to be doing it this year as the main firework display in town so firework display might well be gone uh, replaced with this excellent um, this amazing laser light show um, that'll be lighting up New Year in St Anton um, so that's something else for I suppose for the locals and any tourists here to be looking forward to as well um, so that's kind of my short little 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 roundup of what's new in St Anton mainly focused around the opening um, and very happy to say um, as I finish this little bit of my podcast my first podcast um, it's still snowing outside um, so now could be the time to to get the skis ready and if these weather forecasts ring true then let's hope we could be ski touring in no time at all but thanks for listening um, well, cheers good I mean I, I, I have never been to St Anton everyone goes on about how amazing it is I'm thinking I'm going to go and say I'm not going to go. I'm just never no. going to go. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just not going to go and prove I'm really alternative. I'm refusing um, to. Uh, go. Well, I think you're wrong um, because that would be, you know, cutting off your nose to spite your face. Because St Anton is without doubt one of, you know, the the great ski resorts, um, you know, certainly of Europe and probably of the of the world. You know, I don't think you necessarily need to do the whole apres thing, which it is quite famous uh, for. Um, but it's worth. I guess you couldn't go there and not check out. You've probably heard of you know the Musavert and the Crazy Kangaroo. I mean, they are phenomenal. Uh, they're not necessarily. I'm not necessarily one dancing on the tables, you know, these days uh, anymore. But there's that side of it, and there's brilliant skiing there as well. Really, really good skiing. Um, so, uh, and the, the town is beautiful. Uh, and apart from you know anything else, it, it's worth going just for that. You know, it's not a, a cliche to to say that it's you know it's, it's just a, a very traditional, beautiful Tyrolean place, and and some amazing architecture there as well, like modern architecture. They've managed to mix in the uh, two. You know, I'm I'm a huge fan, so I think you're wrong. You should go. I spent most of my time trying to persuade people not to go when I was working in ski sales because obviously I was given really rubbish, not rubbish, but less less famous um, rival resorts. I was like, no, you don't want to go to St. Anton. You want to go to um, Bora Vets. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not, it's um, not right for everyone, I don't, but uh, I think uh, it's definitely uh, a place that every um, you know, keen skier should go to at least once, and then probably when you go there once, you'll discover that you want to go there again. Uh, if I had, if we, if we had a, um, a big budget for this uh, podcast, Ian, right now I would play um, "Come Fly with Me" by right. Frank Sinatra, but that to introduce the next section. But unfortunately, we have uh, no way of doing that, so we'll just um, start okay. talking about it instead—a seamless link in that way. Now, there's a, a company we used to bang on about for literally hours in the beginning of our podcast wasted so much um, airtime of talking about the non-event that was powered air now the people behind it have decided to try again and open another airline why are they doing it i can only assume that um in the the early days of powered air and for people who, who didn't listen to the earlier pods you can actually track them down i guess they're probably in a, episode five or something like that around that time it was basically a charter airline they're going to run from the uk to Sion in switzerland and Sion is um at the end of lake geneva not annecy but at the end of lake geneva very close to uh Cron montana and a shorter transfer if you want to get to verbier or zermatt uh, other uh, resorts like uh, Le Diablere and Villar, etc. And, you know, they never flew. They never took off because there wasn't the demand. Uh, it was really good. Now, I presume, however, that when they were starting that up, they established that there was enough demand to put out what they're proposing to do now, a, uh, a members-only private jet club. I think it's insane, Ian. Uh, have you been on their website? If you want, to, if you want to buy into a private members jet club, you don't go and click a PayPal button, do you? <laughs> I buy secondhand video games with a PayPal button, not exclusive membership to an ex- executive club. Yeah. <laughs> 
I also like the fact on the website it says um, you need to, you know, we want people's expressions of interest. You don't express an interest in a flight, and you have to put, you have to commit to thirty. Flights. Well, I think their their theory was that there's a lot of people who own properties over there who want to be able to fly out, um, yeah, every every weekend uh, during the winter, um, and yeah, the flight goes from city airport. You, you know, you just wouldn't think, having gone through the whole process, that. Uh, they wouldn't be trying to do it again unless there was you know, a good amount of market research that suggested that it could work. Um, I spoke to um, a well-known airline broker, as you do, um, and we, we spoke yeah. about Powder, uh, interestingly enough, and he said literally no one in his industry thought it would happen. He said it was the most insane idea ever, which is probably why I'm not mentioning yeah. his actual name right now. But he said that no one could believe it, that they even thought that it would work. They don't even have an aeroplane. You can't run yeah. an airline without an aeroplane, Yeah, right? it does recall, I've got a feeling it might be Oscar Wilde, but he, or someone said, you know, history repeats itself the first time as tragedy and the second time as farce. So Ian has been having a very exciting week uh, this week. Um, whatever week it is, we're finishing. This is the 23rd of November we're recording this, and some big announcements was announced by British Ski and Snowboard. Um, the first announcement was that they're changing the name to GB Snowsports, um, so they can include all winter sport activities. Clever, I like that. Um, Ian, obviously, you know more than me. Why did they do that? Why did they uh, change the name? They wanted, I think, the main reason is that calling it GB Snowsport. And bringing together all of those disciplines together under under the one banner, so not just you know the, the ski and snowboard guys, but for example, ski jumping and the Paralympic side of things and telemarking and everything under one banner will make it easier for them to approach potential sponsors because the the financial side of things is very important. You know, I went up to the British Olympic Association. Uh, in London on Wednesday, and um, Vicky Gosling, who was interviewed on the uh, podcast uh, previously, I think it was back in September, and was talking about you know how they need to secure those financial resources because you know I don't know how much we talked about this, but the goal is to make Britain a top five snow sport nation by 2030. Wow, I didn't know that. Well, right, okay, so. I'll, 2030 we've just had the 2018 winter olympics so that's three more cycles 2022 2026 2030 and by 2030 they are targeting 10 medals which didn't seem like a a lot you know how the medal table works you know really you've got to get golds to uh, to get high in the medal table haven't you so i'm thinking out of those 10 medals surely you'd need to have Makes me think. I've written it down as my notes, but I'm sure that's what I was told. What you're saying is that uh, the anyway, top four but... win lots of medals, and then you only need ten to be in that top, the the best of the rest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe that is it. Maybe that is it. When she says top five, we're actually aiming for fifth. Yeah, because we're never going to come. We're never going to beat um, uh, Russia or the USA, are we? Unless we have a massive population yeah, Russia, growth. If they're allowed. Divide, sorry, Russia, if they're allowed to compete. Yeah. Um, and the USA, although, you know, say that, I think uh, we talked before about how Norway, you know, they had an amazing Winter Olympics at Pyeongchang. And one of the reasons is they didn't, you know, waste loads of money spending it on uh, um, bobsleigh and skeleton, which are incredibly expensive uh, events to fund. And they just spent it instead on, you know, having a really good um, feeder system and uh, for spotting talent and focused on you know where they could win medals which was um you know on snow i suppose for us it's hard to have that feeder system because you know you can identify the talent but then essentially you're then going you need to move your family somewhere where there's some snow well that's is that is that a link to the next bit of this uh no it wasn't but it can be if you like yeah it could be because you need to move your family to where there's snow the other part of the announcement oh, yeah this is exciting this bit re- re- yeah, rebranding to GB Snowsport is basically there was a defection. The, the, no one's called it a defection, but I think it sounds better. Basically, on Westminster Bridge, the uh, French uh, snowball cross team, you know, handed over um, Charlotte Banks, and uh, actually, I don't know what we gave them in return. 
That's obviously completely incorrect. Me. Charlotte they, Banks. They gave him me, Ian. With, <laughs> yeah. You, you're going to do Snowfall Cross for France. In return for Charlotte Banks, who was born in Britain, uh, went out to France when she was four years old uh, with her, her British parents who still worked in the UK. They just wanted to have a lifestyle choice. And she has been representing France in snowboard cross. She went to uh, Sochi, uh, which came 17th, I think, and uh, Pyeongchang, where she came 7th. She was 4th in the world last year. And she has changed uh, nationality. She's going to represent Great Britain this winter. And, and that is pretty big news. Right, well, should we listen to an interview with uh, Ian Martin interviewing... I don't know, I did like that. Um, Ian Martin interviewing her about why she's done it. OK, so um, I'm here with Charlotte Banks, who has just joined um, GB Snow Sport. Uh, she's a, a skier cross, uh, a snowboard cross uh, athlete, excuse me. But I guess the most interesting thing is that until recently you were competing for France. Yes, exactly, until, well, end of last season, yeah. Yeah, and so do you want to explain to me how that change, you know, came about? Well, I mean, I've been looking over what's uh, been happening over GB over the last couple of years. I mean, they've been building up a team and it's been pretty inspiring. Also, yeah, I I wanted to come back and I've been wishing to come back and race for, for my home country in GB for a while, but it's just I needed the support to help me still be competitive on the World Cup level. So I think that now they've actually got it. And yeah, after Pyeongchang Olympics, I was like, I'm starting a new Olympic cycle, so yeah. it's the right time to do it if I want to. And and you've been to two Olympics already, haven't you? Uh, you came seventh in Pyeongchang, is that right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. and um, you know you've been competing on the, the the World Cup circuit for quite a long time. I think I uh, read you were fourth in the world on last season. Yeah. You've won three World Cup uh, snowboard crosses. Yeah, I've been on the podium, you know, a whole bunch of times. So you're a very experienced uh, athlete. Do you think that's quite a shock to, you know, the French Federation that you decided to leave? Yeah, I think uh, nobody expected it. I think that, I mean, the French had uh, a great snowball cost team. So, I mean, I was, yeah, I was in quite good hands, but I think that I needed a fresh start and a, a new, new experience to actually want to continue. I've been struggling a bit in the last couple of years. Actually, do I want to continue snowboarding? And even though start? even though you've been doing so well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> even with the results I've had, yeah. I've actually been wondering if I continue or not. So yeah. I'm wanting to come, if I want, and looking at GB, what's happening. So I've just been like, uh, I think if I want to continue, I need something new. And coming over to GB with the team they've got in place and the support they've got, I think was the best move yeah. if I wanted to continue over the next four years. For the next, Great. Uh, and I think um, I'm right in saying that, um, you know, a factor may have been uh, that your, your coach previously on the French team was uh, Jérôme Chupin. Is that correctly pronounced? <laughs> yeah, and he was your coach on the French team, but he was recruited by um, Team GB or, or GB Snow Sport. Yeah, so he stopped. Well, yeah, the, he was stopping working with the French team last season at the end of last season. So it was a bit like I'm going to start from new anyway. Uh, if I'm in the French team or if I move, so it's a bit like what was keeping me there stopped really. I mean. I was going to start from new, and so I was like, well, if I'm starting from new and I actually want to go for the next four years, uh, it's the right moment to change over to GB. And yeah, and you'd worked yeah. with uh, with uh, Jerome for quite some time, had you? Uh, I've been working, yeah, I think five or six years yeah. on the World Cup circuit, so yeah, I think if, if it was a fresh start, I mean, I wanted, I was like, I want to move over and come to GB. Yeah. Happened, yeah, yeah. And we should stress that, you know, you were born in the UK, weren't you? And yeah. both your parents are both British? Both my parents are British. We just moved out to France when I was four. Yeah. But my older brother was racing, competing for yeah. GB. Uh, I saw that both years. your brothers uh, have competed at a high level as well, haven't they? Yeah, we did a season where all three of us were on the World Cup circuit, so that was pretty... That's, that's very cool. So... <laughs> 
two of you competing for France, one of you competing for GB, <coughs> excuse me, at that stage. And that, I mean, your parents must have, uh, well, probably couldn't believe that, right? Yeah, I think it was actually pretty stressful for them all to have Right, because you'd all be going in different directions to different events right, at the same yeah, time. I mean, competing on the border course is pretty, there's quite a lot of um, injuries that happen. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, uh, but you know, very impressive. And are they still racing at all now? Or? No, they've stopped. They've yeah, stopped they, did, did they? Did they? Did they find it disappointing that you kept beating them? No, <laughs> no, I wasn't beating them. But yeah, I think they just didn't have the will to compete and put all the. They wanted to change and do something yeah. else. I mean, it's a lot of. There's a lot of a lot of commitment uh, required and for they sure. Wanted to do something else, yeah. Yeah, and and so, um, how do you think it will be? This winter, for example, going back. I mean, I looked at the FIS website this morning, and it already says, uh, you know, GB against your name there. Yeah. I can't. I don't know when it became official, but I guess uh, they. On Monday, well, Monday morning. Yeah. Right. Okay. And you know, with people who've been your teammates, I know you probably already get on with a bunch of people from the other countries. Do you think it will change anything for this winter? Mm, I don't think it will change much. I mean, uh, all the. We, I mean, we get, I get on the road quite well with all the teams, and I think, yeah, uh, it just opens it up a bit more, and yeah, you're not between, with the French team, it was a big team, so actually you could just stay between you, and now you just need to open up a bit yeah. more. Yeah, I saw um, a quote from um, uh, Luc Fay. Who, uh, he said he thought it might motivate the other French members of the team to try and try harder to uh, to beat you. <laughs> Do you think? Uh... I don't think. So. <coughs> I think that I mean, we it's an individual sport, and uh, the the main aim is to yeah beat everyone. I mean, yeah, the teammates are not, but in the end, I mean, last season we were racing. We could have two or three French girls in the in final, so. The aim is still to, to beat the others. So and I you're think, you're against you know, it anyway, actually, aren't you? As soon as you're racing, you a bit forget about the teammates. Even yeah. if you want everybody to divide well. I think the main thing is, yeah, everybody at their best level and to produce a great race. I think that's the best. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a big decision. I think it's clearly motivated by some of the... Uh, the changes that are going on at Snow Sport GB, definitely motivated by her uh, her coach uh, moving as well. You know, I know the French were were kind of unhappy about it, but what I find interesting is that, you know, you get some sports like cricket and rugby and things like that, where you can't just switch nationality straight away. You know, you have to go through a waiting period, but in skiing, apparently, you could just do it like that if you want to. I think, actually, technically, if you want to compete at the Olympics, Vicky Gosling told me that you have to do it at least a year before the Olympics. What, like um, a gardening leave type thing? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But there you go. So, you know, that would considerably strengthen the, the British snowboard cross uh, team. And, and you know, she's definitely um, podium potential. And I believe, well, Vicky Gosling, again, there's going to be an announcement at some point about this. I think it's a female ski jumper who is going to uh, join Team GB. From, from France GB as, well. as well. Don't know what nationality uh, they are, but we will find out. I don't, something, I, don't, I mean, I think, good luck to the individual athletes, I get it. If they want to they move sport, you know, it's for, they're doing it for themselves, aren't they? Um, and I'm not saying that country doesn't matter to them necessarily as much. But it's about them having the best opportunity to be the best in their sport, right? Yeah. But to me, these kind of this sounds like we're actively looking to recruit people who have already set up within their system. I don't know why it doesn't feel right for me. It just well, it probably. I mean, there was a quote I read from found an article in France from the head of the FFS, the French Federation de Ski, who basically said that. Um, you know, um, yeah, she's 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 benefited from 15 years of financial uh, support from uh, the French system. Um, and, you know, she went to um, Pyeongchang as one of uh, four French snowball cross athletes. Well, you know, that fifth person who didn't qualify, I can imagine she's pretty pissed off right now. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's different in, I suppose, in commercial sports, you know, like um, Formula One racing where you move teams and that's just, that's part of it. Um, you're not 
that's just the way it happens. But for this, it seems like it's, it shouldn't be commercialised in this sort of poaching way, especially, I think, it feels to me like the GB Snowsports are maybe doing it because they want to um, get better results, which, once again, I've said it before, for me, it's about people being good at sport and enjoying it and doing the best they can, not necessarily picking sports that we want to do well at, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I understand. I mean, you know, she she wanted to move. I don't know how much that she was, you know, uh, headhunted as such. They knew that she was... I mean, there was an article when I was researching it. There was an article in The Standard about a year ago where it was talking about three French... Uh, well, the French trio who could have raced for Team GB. And they picked out three people who are currently representing France who were British, and she was one of them. So she's sort of been on the radar. And actually, there is a uh, um, a ski jumper, a kid called Johnny Leroyd, who's based in Courcheval. Good name. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But he's representing France. He was basically born in France, brought up in France. But both of his parents are British. They run a chalet operation over there. And... Uh, you know, who knows? Maybe I, I, I'm pretty sure she told me it's a female ski jumper, but you never know. It could be him who is the other person they're targeting to compete for uh, for GB events. Maybe it will happen to my children one day. They'll have to make that tough decision. Yeah, after after your time in La Clusa, yeah, yeah. Who knows? Um, there's more British um, news from athletes in the winter because it's that time of year, obviously. Uh, the FIS uh, Alpine World Cup has been underway with slalom and. In Finland, we've had Dave Riding and Laurie Taylor taking part um, on the 18th of November. It was Dave scored uh, a 12th place finish, I think. He seemed fairly pleased bit by um, from what I can gather. Um, sadly, Laurie Taylor was a he was a DN, DFM, DFQ, DNQ. There we go. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, it's a reasonable start. I think he'd done better than that before, Dave Riding, at that particular venue. But, um, it's conditions you know, are quite tough. In, yeah, but as long as he comes in the in the top fifteen, I'm not an expert on this, but I think that you know that affects your seedings. You need to be in the top fifteen to get the early starts. So hopefully, he can get into the move on to the top ten after that. I'd like to say it's well worth um, checking out Laurie Taylor's um, YouTube channel. He's doing a behind the Brits um, thing that he seems to be filming and editing himself, and it's giving a oh, nice. Okay. Um, it's a really nice story of behind the scenes. Um, it's not just about him, he's hanging out with Dave and all the other teams, so I would definitely check right. that out. I will count for it. Um, I kind of feel I've already said this, but I was talking to my friend um, uh, a few weeks ago, and he was describing the, the level of work that goes into building up for Dave riding, doing some training out in the Alps. Like His assistant coach team get up at something like four o'clock in the morning, they're up on the mountain, um, pitching the course, grooming it, setting it, watering it so it's nice and firm and stuff. And, and then Dave turns up and he literally does four runs and that's it. Can you imagine putting that much work in every day? And you're like, oh, he's done it now. Uh, no, but I guess that's one of the reasons why they're looking for funding because it took about four people's uh, work for, for you know a few seconds of his practice. It's literally a few seconds, isn't it? It takes absolutely no time. That's insane. Well, we talked about, we, I think we touched on that once before because, you know, you have this theory that you need 10,000 hours of practice to become of any particular um, you know, art. I think it's a book by Malcolm Gladwell, where he's you know, the, the top uh, violinists, for example, or, you know, tennis players or whatever it might be. But I think for skiers, it's almost impossible to hit that mark because. You know, look at it. He's you're telling me that he's doing what four training runs. I guess each of them they might take like a minute or something like that. So that's four minutes. He's never yeah, going to get four a minutes hours. of uh, skiing. You know, every day he couldn't he couldn't get close even over uh, ten years to get to ten thousand hours of. Uh, but it is the reason why I'm really good at skiing <laughs> chairs. Right. Um, someone else who's very good sitting on chairlifts, I expect, is a guy called Steve Angus, who's out in Val d'Isere. He's a ski instructor for TDC, the Development Centre. Um, and he's got a report from Val d'Isere, which opens when? Next week, is it? Uh, no, this weekend as well, actually, I think. 
this weekend, which will be last weekend when you hear the first podcast, so the, 20, <laughs> the 26th of November. Yeah, Steve, what have you got to say this In time? In particular, I'm going to be talking um, about Teen, and Teen, um, not to be outdone by Val Lazare, very often uh, share a very healthy rivalry, Val Lazare and Teen. Uh, teen are um, progressing on with lots of very, very good and interesting developments, so I'm just going to update you on some of those um, here and now. Now, uh, the big uh, sort of a uh, talking point, the showpiece development this year, um, has been the, um, uh, the sort of re. Uh, reconfiguration, if you want to call it that, of the Grand Mott cable car, the cable car right at the top. Now, whilst the actual cable car um, pylons and start and end station haven't changed, the actual cabins have. They have uh, somehow managed to um, get permission um, to put an open-top viewing uh, deck uh, on the actual cabins that uh, go up and down um, on that cable car. Um, the actual open top aspect is not going to be open in the winter, um, mainly due to uh, the cold and the wind and snow, I think. Um, but certainly in the non-winter months, you'll be able to go up um, when you're on the cable car and look um, from the open top viewing platform on top of the cable car whilst it's uh, moving you up the mountain or down if you're coming down on the cable car. Um, so the actual cabins have been totally redeveloped and upgraded, um, which is a very exciting uh, photo opportunity. And certainly I, I can imagine there'll be quite a few um, selfies taken up there over the next uh, over the next uh, few years that's for sure thanks steve very kind of you if you would like to um join in the show uh, like steve and andy have done this week then you feel free to tweet us at the ski podcast or you can email ian at the ski podcast.com email jim at the ski podcast.com find us on facebook um, or just shout really loudly from the top of the next ski slope that you're on and we will come and find you. As you know, this summer I went to the Alps um, and well, I did some skiing up on a glacier. I met up with my friend Dave, who's a ski instructor, and he um, kind of deconstructed my technique to make me better. Well, let's let him explain now, it, shall we? Three different ways of getting uh, a ski to turn. There are others, but these are the main ones that you might want to be uh, looking at. What I'm trying to do with you, Jim, is build an awareness of these different ways to get a ski to turn. first one we're going to cover off is pressing. We're going to go down here in a very basic snowplow turn and all I want you to do is push down on whatever ski is on the outside of the turn. So if I'm turning that way to the left, I'm pushing down on my right ski. Pushing down the outside ski? The ski that is on the outside of the turn. And am I meant to be pushing into any edges or I, just No, no, flat I just down? want you, we're trying to isolate as much as possible the pushing. Now I've asked Jim to be really, really balanced and I can see that what he's doing by pushing down onto his outside ski and pushing the ski down into the snow, his weight shifts to the outside of the turn and he's making some really nice smooth turns. His outside leg has gone longer, inside leg has gone shorter. Very nice. Yeah, well that's the whole point. So we're taking you back to a slower speed. So the next technique, next turn is gonna be We could call them steering turns, turny turns, rotational turns, whatever. Well turny turns, let's go for turny. Turny turns is cool. I don't like to use like the official words to puts people like you off. You know, yeah. It's kind of unauthoritarian. So Turny turns, all I want you to do is keep your skis in a snowplow like we did last time. Okay. Imagine that this is the, an arrow, top of, you know, an arrow, piece of cheese, snowplow, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And all I want you to do is just concentrate on pointing this arrow where you want to go. Now, for some reason, at the end of this um, exercise, I couldn't really focus on what I was meant to do and was more concerned on how I looked. And aren't we all when we go skiing? I want to have more flexible ankles. Yeah. I feel that looks better. <laughs> no, do we? Yeah, okay. Is that if the wrong want, thing to say? I shouldn't say that. No, you can go down that road if you want. You know, you can kind of mimic, you know, someone you really want to ski like, but you might be fighting against your body's natural movement. So I should be going naturally. I shouldn't try and mimic someone else. 
but then naturally, once I'm better, I will look nicer. You'll look like, I don't want to be too vague on this, but you'll look like a really good version of someone who skis with your physiology. Okay. Right? I, I can, I'm... Some you know, people say I look like Robbie Downey Jr. Yeah, I, I think I look I mean, more like right. Carl Holman from Crossroads. <laughs> okay. You know, what so my I'm gonna ski experience So I'm going to have a more enjoyable ski experience skiing naturally how I... Following, following my body than following someone else and how they ski and go, he looks nice if that's got Yeah, yeah. Don't do an impression of me. You might not want to ski like me. Okay. Well, what Dave doesn't realise is I do want to ski like him, which is why I started paying attention again for turning um, part three and then so what we're looking to do now is look at edging and i'd like you to do a little movement with me um and what i'm going to do is take my skis keep the tip properly together and i want you to imagine that you're scraping a knife over some butter uh, butter scraping a knife over a piece of toast yeah okay and you can feel the edge cutting the snow yeah you can hear it actually on the audio you can hear the cutting the snow do it the same with the other foot just to make sure that we've done it equal amount of time and you might find you have more ability with one foot than the other to scrape away. Yes, definitely my left foot is harder with this. And I've always noticed that. Everyone's got a weak foot, right? Mine's my left. And I also put this down a lot to snowboard, and that is my back foot. So it does work. Funny feeling, right? The it? science works. Funny feeling. So you scrape the ski away, you scrape it away enough, and all of a sudden you start to go in the opposite direction. Yeah, totally. So there we go, lesson complete. Robbie Downer Jr. can ski a lot better. Um, I don't know if I can. Um, but we decided to debrief on the drag lift to find out how I can put those three turns into practice in real-life situations on the mountain. I don't normally, by the way, make a practical talking technique on the T-bar. Okay. I try and talk about anything else. Sure. Social, but I'm going to make an exception for you in this case. Thanks. Um, we talked about three different types of turning, right? In what different... And we talked about pushing the ski... We've talked about edging the ski, and we've talked about steering the ski. So, can you give me an idea of when you would just use a sort of pushing tone? You know, you push the ski. I would use that on a really nice mellow blue-red, going wide, having a nice time. Yeah. That's probably where I'd use it. Right? Because you don't need anything more than that. When would you want an edgy type of tone? Um, Coming into a busy. You. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Any other particular <laughs> I just want to stop at the bottom. Yeah, yeah, one. yeah, spray people with snow. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and maybe the other time that you'd use it is if it's icy, maybe. Yep. You want more edge grip. Mm -hmm. edge, edge you can kind of substitute the word grip for. When would you just steer the skis? Um, would that be what I'm racing? Yeah, arguably there's racing, there's a lot of, edging. A lot of stuff going on. Edging, um, when I'm on a turn, if I'm um, navigating a busy piece, now at the end of the day, everyone's on the piece, I really need to navigate, get down yeah. without hurting anyone. Yeah, that's one. These aren't the answers you were hoping for, are they? How about, I'll give you one. Right? Yeah? You one. How about when the slope is blue, you don't really have to push very hard to the high ceiling like that could just ski down the slope just pointing your skis where you want to go right the other time when you might want a, 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 the ability to really steer your skis or turn them would be again well a huge thanks to dave for taking me skiing and deconstructing my technique no mean feat i'm sure um, if you want some instruction from dave then give him a call or check out his website the link is in the show notes <laughs> The other week, Ian was at the ski show and he caught up with Shemi Olcott. This is the second part of his interview. So the Ski Club of Great Britain re recently uh, produced uh, a report and that report showed that uh, in terms of overall participation it was 66% men, 34% uh, women. Uh, I wondered, kind of two-part question really, um, you know, why do you think that is and, and what do you think can be done to redress mm. that and to improve the balance? Firstly, I was really surprised when I saw that stat. Yeah. Um, I, I live in a world where all my friends, all my female friends are the same as me. They all love to charge, they all love to explore their boundaries. So skiing, heli skiing, it's definitely on all their agendas. Um, I, I think that having become a mum um, in the last few years and soon to be a mum again, 
there are a lot of pressures and expectations on you, um, whether that's you become a full-time mum or you go back to work. Yeah. Um, I think it's really difficult for, for time management for a lot of these, these mums out there who run their families and, and they neglect themselves. Their, yeah. their needs and wants and their luxury, it, like skiing is, becomes a last resort. It's like, right, I'm gonna sort my kids out. Uh, my husband, he needs to go on boys trips. I will work and stay at home and tie everything together. Right. But from what you're saying there, that, I mean, we need the, the to sort of redress post. that a little we, bit. We do, uh, we do. And, and you can see that with the amount of holidays that are booked by women yeah. that they don't go on. It's right. really high. <laughs> okay. you know, they are organising the family. They put everyone else's needs first. Yeah. Um, and it definitely shouldn't be this way. And, because and, and how do you think that you know, we could adjust for that you know, within, within skiing in the UK, for example? I think it's more of a society thing. I think women need to come out. I went straight back to work at 10 days when Lockie was 10 days old yeah. and I was a full-time mum and I was working. And it was really important for me to do that because I didn't want to lose my own identity. Yeah. I have seen a lot of people quit their jobs and just live through their kids and it doesn't make them happy. Yeah, um, and, and I think also it's what works for you. Knowing you and your personality, it wouldn't work for you at all if you weren't you know, involved in all the different exactly. things that you're I, in. Exactly, I'm a better mum to, to my son and my boys to be because I follow my passions. Yeah. It means that I enjoy every moment I have with them um, because I'm confident in who I am as a person as well as a mum. Uh, Ian, let me ask you this. Uh, when you asked her that question, was that the response you kind of were expecting? Because it, it seemed to me like it was a, a different direction. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I thought she'd be sort of coming up with some kind of initiatives for, for people coming into the sport. Yeah, I mean, it, her point about women who are booking skiing holidays for men was quite interesting. You know, I, I don't know if any of the surveys that we've had around the place verify that or whether that's just uh, anecdotal. What, what, what do you think? Well, from days selling ski holidays, yeah, 100% it's mainly really? um, the women who phone up and book the holidays. It's, it's mums organising groups of other people and dealing with it. Um, I mean, there's been, there were many occasions when a guy would phone up and go, uh, I've got 12 people who want to go to um, uh, St. Anton um, and I want a hot tub. And you go, all right then, um, let me sort it out. I'll have a look for you, sir. And then you go, uh, can you just talk to my wife about it afterwards? And right. she'll, she'll book it all. Okay. She'll, she'll have the credit card. So, yeah, I, do, I mean, she is right in that respect. But for me, I mean, I don't get that. Um, I am a man. I book all our all our holidays when we go self-catering I cook and my main priority is looking like making sure my wife and children have a good time skiing I mean selfishly <laughs> so we can go again um and then the lads holiday thing like I don't really go on lads holidays and big group holidays like that but then there we go I am a man banging on about being exactly. a man exactly you so, know I mean not. this isn't this is not necessarily yeah, the forward, privilege, is it? you know that expression I mean it's you know we're not in a position where we can yeah. comment on what it's like to be you know, a woman in skiing. Um, but, you know, from what you're saying there, yeah, a lot of women are you know, spending their time sorting out men's holidays. But why aren't they going... The, the question was, though, why aren't there more women, um, not necessarily going heli skiing, but, you know, in the backcountry? Yeah, I mean, I think she does touch on that, and it's a, it's a, bigger, a bigger question being able to resolve that. I mean, it's more like, why aren't there... You know, why are there uh, so few women skiing anyway is is more of an issue. It, it, I was really surprised when I saw those stats in the in the ski club survey. Yeah, it's insane. Well, Shemi, if you're listening, which I'm sure you are, uh, my wife will come <laughs> skiing with you, she said. Um, oh, let's, let's find out what Billy Morgan's favourite ski resort is. I bet it's going to be Tiffendale in South Africa. What do you it wouldn't you? surprise me. He's, He's a bit off the wall, uh, Billy Morgan. You know, it could be something uh, different. Let's let's find out. I interviewed you a couple of years ago, and you told me that your favourite ski resort at the time was Meyerhofen. Yeah. Still the same? Yeah, man. I mean, it's got everything you need. It's in the Tyrol Valley. Yeah. Tyrol's got what you need. Do a bit sure. of training out there still? Yeah. I mean, when the park's up and running, it's a sick place to be. Yeah. Yeah. And this winter, what what are your plans? I'm not sure yet. No. I haven't made any plans at all. We'll wait for the snow to come first. There we go. It's another ski resort that I've never been to and I know little about. Um, but on the, on the, it's Billy Morgan telling me to go, so I'm probably okay. going to try this one. Yeah, well, you know, you need to do... Have you been to Austria? Have you skied in Austria? Um, I went to... I skied in yeah. Solden uh, for one day. 
and I've okay. been to Ishgul as well. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. it's great fun. Ian, can you give me one fact other than Billy Morgan likes um, Meyerhofen? A fact a about Meyerhofen? Yeah, yeah no, uh, it's where they where they hold the Altitude Comedy Festival these days. You know, it started off in uh, Meribel. Ooh. I know you're a big fan of stand-up comedy. Maybe you could combine the two. Right, Ian, here is the moment we've been waiting for. We've been talking about it for, I don't know, three weeks now. Three podcasts at least. It is the Ski Podcast Book Club, and this time we're talking about a book called A Wall of White. And as I look on the front cover right now, it is written by Jennifer Woodleaf. Uh, she is an American author, and she's written in yeah. Sports Illustrated. Um, which I wasn't really sure. I, I don't really know much more about, about sports and director. I just thought it was about naked women. But am I wrong? Uh, I don't read it either, but I believe the swimsuit edition is always a popular so one. She may write in that, I don't know. Um, but she definitely has the bombast of a someone who writes for a, 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 an American sport magazine when she um, describes things. Um, basically, it's about um, Alpine Meadows Ski Resort, which is near Lake Tahoe. And in 1982, at the end of the season, in the spring, there was an insane amount of snow that fell. Um, and there was a huge avalanche that resulted in this, despite the avalanche team's best resolve to make sure that it didn't happen. And it took out the whole ski centre, um, which was at the, the foot of the mountain by the car park. Um, several people died it was quite a, a huge tragedy in the area but it was a good book Ian what did you think about it yeah I mean I I uh, really enjoyed it from about halfway or two-thirds of the way through once she stopped it. introducing all the people yeah she just yeah introduced every single character we knew the life story of every single character who was involved which you know maybe that background no disrespect to those dead people but well, they didn't all they didn't all die, but you know, then when the avalanche happens, I mean, you do understand her. She talks about the the way the um, they they do their job and how they clear the mountain and what's uh, involved, etc. But essentially, it needs the avalanche to start, and once that happens, it's incredibly dramatic. And I happened to watch. I don't know if you saw it. There was a program on BBC. It might have been Horizon or something like that, but they were studying. Yeah, how avalanches are work, and they were you know to measure the power of them. Did you see that program at all? It was on. Is that the one with? Um, it has a rock avalanche in it as well, doesn't it? Down a, a stream type thing. Yeah, it might have been. At one point, they put a car on the slope, uh, with fitted with lots of uh, cameras and a GPS. Oh, this is a different device. one. I haven't seen this one. No. Okay, so they could measure when the avalanche came past, how quickly it moved, and where it moved uh, to, and how far down the slope to get a, a feeling for. Yeah, the power of these avalanches. But this particular avalanche, you know, was just so extraordinary in terms of its scale and also where it hit because it went right across the 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 centre uh, and the car park at the bottom of the resort. And, you know, consequently, even though there weren't many people around that day, anyone who was in that area, um, or pretty much everyone, uh, died. I really enjoyed, I did enjoy uh, learning how the ski patrol did their job. I, I, I found that quite fascinating. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed, you know, the struggle that they went through to try and set off these avalanches. Because you kind of think, oh yeah, it's a few guys throwing bombs. But they are out there in such extreme conditions trying to set off these huge avalanches, these huge slides to try and protect people for literally no money. So I found that the concept of what the ski patrol are doing really fascinating. Yeah. Um, you know, I, that, that, yeah, it was good. You know, all of those guys, I mean, I think pro probably, you know, that has changed a bit now as that. Well, I hope so. That how, was um, nearly well, 40 yeah. years ago. It was in 82, how they go about, uh, you know, doing their job. But, um, you know, you've probably done uh, you know, avalanche training where you you have your beeps and, uh, you know, you test to try and find one that's under the snow, you know, as practice in case, you know, anything goes wrong when you're skiing off piece. And, you know, you get to grips with it and you work out how it is and you get your probe out. And But these people were trying to deal with, I think, was it 15 feet of snow? People buried under 15 feet of snow and trying to 
trying to track people down. We've got absolutely no idea where they are uh, at all. Um, yeah, it was that deep, and they were just it was a line, and they had no propoles because they were buried in the avalanche centre. So they were literally using what, a electrical electrical conduit, yeah. conduit, conduit. Yeah. Yeah. To, to probe down. It was just, um, it was incredibly scary, I can imagine. And no one yeah. was allowed in. They couldn't get the rescue teams in because the approach to the, the resort was through a really um, thin valley that is highly avalanche prone as well. Yeah, it was, yeah, so it was, it was tremendous once you, you know, you got into it. I could imagine it being, you know, uh, sadly, a kind of very average TV movie. Oh, yeah. Um, I'd recommend it for anyone who, who, you know, recognises the power of the mountains and the fact that, you know, although we do all of these things to try and control them, you know, sometimes it is just out of your control. It's, you know, this is nature and, you know, snow uh, you know, comes down and you can do everything that you can to try and make it do what you want it to do. But, uh, you know, it's, it's out of our control. And on that deep thought, I think we'll wrap up the show. Okay. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Um, if you want to get in contact with the show, you can do it in the usual way on Twitter at the Ski Podcast or email us. It's all on our website at theskipodcast.com. Uh, um, if you want to follow Ian on Twitter, he is at Skipedia. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at the Average Skier. And thank you very much for listening. Cheers, Ian. Enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you, Jim, and uh, speak to you again soon. Bye.